Hi, Natalie. Hi, Raf. How's it going? Yeah, going pretty awesome. How about you? Good. It's trying to snow outside right now, actually. I know it's warm where you're at, right? Warm-ish. You're on the opposite side of the world. We are. It's uh, 35 degrees here today. Oh, I don't know what that means in Fahrenheit, but it sounds... That's like 95 or 100, somewhere around that. Is that really? Yeah. Oh, that's Let me just Google it. 35 Celsius in Fahrenheit. It is 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Ooh, you must not be happy outside right now because I know you don't like hot weather. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoy the cold. I enjoy the cool. That's too But um, it's pretty much a first world problem. Yeah, it you know? is. Got to stay inside where it's air conditioned. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you're in climate controlled environment. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about what's topical for us at the moment, at least. And I think it's kind of perennially topical for the Pilates world at large, which is, uh, and I love the way you phrase this uh, when you, you propose it, is what to do if you get pulled over by the Pilates police. Keep both hands on the wheel at all time. Don't make any sudden moves. License and registration, please. Okay. And I, I think, you know, so this, all right, so what, what do you mean by that? Specifically, what, what do you mean by that? Good point. I think we, do, we need to define what the Pilates police is because I think there can be several examples. One would be, the one that comes to mind is when somebody criticizes what you're doing is unsafe. Uh, and also when someone accuses you of not teaching real Pilates, that would be another example. So that's not real Pilates. How many more episodes can we do on what's real Pilates? <laughs> no, I know. I think a lot because I listened to your episode with Naomi DeFabio and you didn't define it. You didn't define Pilates. You tried, well, you asked her like five thing. times. You asked her five times and she wouldn't do it. Well, the thing is, it's turtles all the way down, right? Which is, it's, it's, it, if you define it as anything other than the precise method taught by Joseph Pilates in his book, Return to Life Through Contrology, right? Then it immediately opens up a almost infinite Pandora's box of different possible interpretations. Because if you're, you know, like I said on the previous episode with, with Naomi, like, well, if you, in, if you include one additional thing, if you say, okay, it's 100% exactly what Joseph taught in his Return to Life to Controlology and the series of five added by Romana in, you know, the 1960s or 70s or whenever she added it. Well, it's like, okay, well, why that series? What about the way that Romana taught Swan Dive? You know, that was a bit different to the way Joseph taught it. Is that Pilates or not Pilates? Oh, that's still Pilates. Okay. So what about she taught, you know, something called rolling like a ball where he taught rolling back? You know, like, it is, so then it, it becomes like as soon as you give like any, as soon as you give, as soon as you waver a, a, a jot from like, no, we're a hundred percent, you know, fully strict to exactly what Joseph Pilates said and only what Joseph Pilates said, then basically you have to say, well, basically anything's Pilates. Anything's Pilates. You know, and, and so I think it's not possible to define what Pilates is. I think it's not possible. It's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a useful 
question. It's kind of like, I don't know, some judge in the US back in the 70s, you know, someone said, what's pornography? He said, it's really hard to define, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be, that would be my default answer. I, I'm looking through, oh, I found it. So I listened to the podcast dropped around Christmas time. And so after the podcast dropped, I messaged Naomi and Phoebe, two other trainers on our team. And I, I said to her, I love your podcast episode. It made me think a lot. I listened to it over the course of several days just because I, I just needed time to think about it. And so I said, my current definition of Pilates is exercise performed on a mat or on or with apparatus invented or derived from the work of Joseph Pilates. And I, I said that very specifically because I remember what you said where it's just like, well, you could be riding a horse and saying this is Pilates. So I specifically said it's exercise performed on a mat or apparatus designed by Joseph Pilates. Or derived. But or as derived. soon as you add in the derived, all right, so then what about so all right, so that's a reformer. Great. What about a megaformer? You know? Yeah. So all right, so what about a reformer you know, designed by Joseph Play? So that's a Gratz machine. Okay. Well, what about a balanced body machine? Right. What about a, you know, stock machine? Are that is that still, you know, Pilates? Well, what about it? If it is, okay, well, they've got a different number of springs, a different way of adjusting the foot bar, a different amount of tension on the springs. They use, you know, straps, like they use ropes instead of leather. Like all of the, there are quite a few differences, right? Some of them have, have different heights off the ground. Um, and some of them have like, you know, adjustable parts that the original reformers didn't have. And then, all right, so what about a megaformer? So what about the KX Pilates Reform, which is a franchise here in Australia, where they've basically designed their own reformer with a longer foot platform. Mm. So you can stand up there with more stability, right? But apart from that, it's still a reform. What about the Allegro 2 with the adjustable foot bar? Like, is that still Pilates? And, and, if, and if you can say, okay, well, the, the, okay, well the, the, I think a Stott Reformer is still a reformer. Okay. Well, what about a KX Pilates? You can't, if you can say a Stott Pilates is still a reformer, how can you say a KX Pilates reformer isn't a reformer? How can you say a balanced body two Allegro two isn't a reformer? You know, it's got a foot bar, it's got a headrest, it's got shoulder pads, it's got straps, it's got springs, it's got a moving carriage, it's got all of those things. What about a mega former? Well, that's got all those things too. Yeah. You know, what about a rowing machine at the gym? You know, like what about a lat pull down machine? And you can still go and say, okay, well, you can still create a lot of those same exercises on these pieces of equipment, or maybe, you know, if we're doing derived, right, I'm sorry, I'm, you, I've hijacked, totally no, hijacked no, this conversation. Go for it. Get it on. <laughs> but but if, we're, if we're saying derived, okay, because then we go, okay, well, there's uh, Joseph Pilates taught the front splits, right, where you're standing, you've got one foot on the foot bar, one foot behind you on the headrest, and you've got your hand behind your head, and your front leg bends and straightens. Okay. Many people don't teach that version these days. They'll teach a version maybe with foot on the front on the foot bar, uh, back foot on the shoulder block, and your hands on the foot bar, or maybe your arms out wide, or maybe your front foot is not on the foot bar; it's on the floor, or maybe you're you're not doing a split; you're doing a lunge, or maybe you're doing a flying split. And so, all right. So if I'm doing a lunge on a on a 
Stott reformer, I'm doing an exercise not taught by Joseph Pilates on a piece of equipment not designed by Joseph Pilates. Is it still Pilates? Well, if that's still Pilates, how is doing a lunge on the mat not Pilates, right? Mm. And if doing a lunge on the mat is Pilates, how is doing a lunge with a dumbbell not Pilates? And if doing a lunge with a dumbbell is Pilates, well, how is doing a, not doing a lunge with a barbell? You know, and if I'm, and we can extrapolate up to, I'm doing a spin class, you know, with a weight vest on, and that's Pilates, right? And so there is no, it's turtles all the way down. There's no point, and unless we draw the line at, you know, exactly what Joseph taught, and nothing but what Joseph taught. You know, you can't, you, you can't stop. It just goes on forever. It's turtles all the way down, except. Except, see, I can't answer any of these questions. I'm, I'm with you. We could go down and down and down this rabbit hole. I can't answer these questions, but you know who can answer these questions? The Pilates police. The Pilates police. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sean Gallagher being uh, the person who uh, famously filed the lawsuit in 2000 or 2001 against a bunch of people for using the term Pilates. He said he owned that term. He had copyright on it or trademark or something. And uh, famously, he lost that lawsuit because the judge said that Pilates is a common usage term, just like the word fitness or something, and that nobody can own a common usage word in the English language. It's not, it's not trademarkable. Um, so you don't have to pay Sean Gallagher royalties if you want to use the word Pilates in your business name. Uh, yeah, so that's why I said who owns, you know, who can make that judgment. <laughs> Which he can't because that's, that's a legal precedent. But the, the, the irony about all of this and the lawsuit is that this lawsuit happened, what, back in 2000. So it's been almost 25 years. And this is a legal precedent, yet it's still a cultural problem within our community because there are still people who feel like they have jurisdiction over the definition of Pilates, aka the Pilates police. Well, it's like when we when they introduced seatbelts in the 1970s, that you know no one used to wear them because it was too super uncool, and then they made a law that you have to wear them, and so more people started wearing them, but it was still super uncool, right? Like they, you can't make it cool by making a law. And so I think we're, that's where we're at with the, with the Pilates police thing is there's been a lawsuit that says, no, you can't own the word Pilates. That's common usage. You know, it's just part of the, the English language now. But there are still people who think that it, they should be able to. Well, and there are people who are doing it who have benefited from the legal precedent. They, you know what I'm saying? I just, there's so much irony in this. There is irony. So, so, so tell me about where you see the irony in this. The irony in this is that the same people who are saying to other people, you're not actually teaching Pilates, I am. The only reason why they can say that is because of the lawsuit. And the lawsuit saying, <laughs> you can, <laughs> Pilates, <laughs> there's nobody can own that term. So it's just like, have you not been paying any attention? Do you not see how ridiculous? This argument is because you don't own it. They didn't. Own, nobody can own it. Sean Gallagher couldn't own it. And yet here you are doing the same thing to somebody else. You're just not suing them, but it's still the, it, within the spirit of owning something that doesn't belong to you, which is you're why. Socially suing, socially suing them. Yeah, you're socially policing it, right? So it's just like. And, you know, honestly, 
I don't tend to follow people. This I'm I'm referring mostly to Instagram because I think this is where a lot of this behavior is coming from, and and it's being. Um, this is where I'm seeing a lot of it is on Instagram, and I don't tend to follow people who make posts like this, but I people send things to me or the Instagram algorithm tries to push a post to me. That's, you know, like somebody, somebody making fun of somebody else doing something and sit, you know, with titles that say, this is not Pilates. And I'm thinking number one, it you're, you seem, you're so ridiculous in this because you don't get to say, the judge already said nobody gets to say what is or what isn't Pilates. Anyway. Right. And and the whole thing about something being a common usage term, you know, like the word fitness or the word, you know, motor car, whatever, is that these words change their meaning across time. You know, the, and I talked about this in the previous episode, you know, everybody used to know like it was blindingly obvious that a motor car was something with an internal combustion engine and four wheels. Okay, well, now we've got cars that have electric motors. So the actual meaning of the word has changed. You know, when you say car now, you know, people make a different meaning from that than what you did, you know, 25 years ago. And that that's the same, you know, Shakespeare used to say thee and thou, and now we say you as the singular, where it used to be plural. You know, like words change, and that is what happens to language to the common usage language. Is it it evolves? You know, that's why you, if you go and watch a play by Chaucer, you can't understand three quarters of what they're saying, even though it's you know supposedly in English. <laughs> you know, it's it's English of five hundred years ago, and it's just evolved so much over that time. And that's what happens with common usage words: is is a definition changes, and you know, words stop being used, and new words come in, you know, and words rise and fall in popularity and words change their meanings. And Pilates is one of those words, you know, it, it changes its meaning over time and, and it, it should change its meaning because just like cars 20 years ago didn't have electric motors, they had internal combustion engines. Well, Pilates 20 years ago wasn't taught online and wasn't, you know, group reformer and, you know, wasn't fitness based and, and all of these other things, but now it is, you know, now it is. And, and, you know, what drives me batty, and I think I, what I see is the irony here is, well, I think what you said is very ironic, but another irony is that, you know, people who are, who, who are in either the classical world or the contemporary world, they, you know, I, I hear there, I hear people saying, oh, you know, it's not Pilates because it's not using the Pilates principles. It's like, well, Joseph didn't make up the freaking Pilates principles. They were introduced, right? So they were the new kid on the block at some point. And like before that book by Friedman Ice in 1980, where the Pilates principles were first introduced, like, you know, I can just imagine some complete old school person who was taught by Joseph Pilates directly reading that book and going, ah, piffle, you know, this isn't true contrology, you know, these modern newfangled ideas with, you know, these crazy young people. And, and so the accepted wisdom gives way to the new progressive idea, which in turn becomes the accepted wisdom, which in turn gives way to the new progressive idea. And each successive generation thinks like, oh, the kids of today, you know, they're 
crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand life, you know, not like we had it in our day. That was, those were the good old days. It's like, I read this book. I can't remember. I think it was Thomas Hardy, The Return of the Native or something. But anyway, at the start of the, the start of the book, it's set in like York, deep, the deep moors of Yorkshire in like 1805 or something. Some like total backwards in, you know, with a reed floor and a smoky rush fire and, you know, peasants sitting around scoffing warm ale at the end of a 14-hour day in the fields. And there's just these two old gaffers there smoking their corn cob pipes or whatever they're smoking and going, ah, the kids of today, they don't understand. You're not like back in our day. They, we did a proper day's work. And, uh, and it's like, yeah, this is 1805, <laughs> you know. You know <laughs> like, and thus it always has been and thus it always will be. In in. I think it was like 97 BC. I think it was, no, I think it was AD, 97 AD. Anyway, it was around the, the round, around, you know, sometime like a hundred years either side of the birth of Christ, right? In ancient Rome, there was a general called Marius. And this was a time where ancient Rome was kind of, it had been at the height of its powers, but there were, their, 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 their military might was being challenged by these barbarians that were coming in and the Roman armies had swept all before them for hundreds of years. But now all of a sudden there were these new barbarians that basically handed the Romans backsides to them on a platter, right? And the Romans had to walk under the swords, which was like this terrible humiliation because they lost a battle. And so they were, you know, the Romans were, you know, humiliated militarily. And Marius was this like progressive general who brought in these new ideas about how we should reorganize the way we we organize it, we fight fight battle and have our battle lines drawn up differently. And he had these new, he wanted to move from basically a maniple to a phalanx, right? Which is a different kind of group of soldiers, right? And there was like violent, literally violent resistance from the old guard saying, no, you know, these crazy new ways, it's not real war fighting. It's, you know, for sissies and it's all newfangled stuff. And it's like, he had to fight tooth and nail and like wait till like five of, five of the old generals died, you know, of old age before he could finally bring in his new, you know, newfangled 93 AD, uh, you know, era, you know, military organization. All of a sudden, the Romans started winning battles again, you know. And it's like even 2,000 years ago, right, it was the battle of the old school versus the, the new things. It's like, this is the human condition. You know, 150,000 years ago, Og was probably doing a cave painting, blowing, you know, you know, beetroot juice onto his hand in a cave in ancient, you know, France. And, you know, someone came up and said, oh, that's not how we did cave paintings back in my day. You know, that's not a real cave painting. You know, back in my day, we used a straw to blow the beetroot juice on our hands. You know, it's just like, this is just, this is the eternal older generation versus younger generation conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, you know, I think it's really funny, but I think you and I, we are buffered not only by having a support group of people, we all think the same and we just kind of laugh at this and it's not a big deal, but we do work with people and we have people in, um, at our school and in our communities that get really rattled when they get pulled over by the Pilates police. And one of the things that I think is really interesting to all these little history lessons that you're giving is one of the, one bit of advice that I have to people, if you want to, if you want to preemptively prepare 
if you want to prepare for getting pulled over by the Pilates police, if you if you feel like you're going to do things differently and put yourself out there, one tip is to actually know your Pilates history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we, that's why we teach it. We teach it at Breathe because right. we want you to know where you come from. All right. What a fantastic practical tip. All right. So tip number one, know your Pilates history. And to do that, read, uh, well, firstly, read Joseph Pilates' books. Read Return to Life Through Contrology. Especially your health, you know, I reckon you could take and leave it because it doesn't actually talk about Pilates in that. It doesn't talk about the exercises. He talks about sleep and fresh air and bodily house cleaning and breathing and stuff. But he doesn't actually talk about the exercises. But Return to Life Through Contrology gives specific instructions about how to do the exercises. And then Cage Line by John Howard Steele would be the other book I'd recommend to, to, to read to understand the original intent and, and method of Joseph Pilates. John Howard Steele was taught directly by Joseph. In fact, I interviewed, interviewed him on the podcast a couple of years back. Um, yeah, so is there any other place you would send people uh, to, to learn their Pilates history? This is actually something that's on my bullet not my bullet, my, um, what, what, my bucket list. That's the word I wanted to use. I would like to read the, um, I'd like to read the court decision from 2000, just because I think that's a really important point in Pilates history where it was, there was a legal precedent in the United States that said, nobody gets to own this term. And I think that's really important going back to the people who are going around Instagram telling other people this is not Pilates. Well, you know what? You don't get to say that. Or you can, you can, but it means nothing. I can ignore, I can ignore you. Yeah. And I will. All right. So, all right. So read Return to Life Through Contrology, read Cage Line by John Howard Steele and go read, look up the, the, the court decision. And if you just Google like Pilates copyright court, decision 2001 or something like that, you'll find it. Um, all right. Know your Pilates history because then you can understand the context of where somebody's coming from. If they're saying X, Y, Z method that I do is real Pilates and ABC method that you do is not real Pilates, you can go, huh, well, I see a broader picture and I see that we're all doing things that are not the same as exactly what Joseph Pilates taught. <laughs> and who's to say one who is or isn't Pilates? It's a broader brushstrokes. All right, great. So um, that's fantastic. What, like, tell me more about, you know, why do you think people get rattled when somebody tells them, you know, some stranger on the internet, you know, tells them what you're doing is not Pilates or you're doing it wrong. You're going to hurt your clients. It's irresponsible. It's not, it's not true. You're do, you're doing it wrong. Like, yeah. Why, do, why does that, like, why does that stress us so much? Put your sociologist hat on and tell me that. <laughs> oh, I think there's plenty of reasons why. I mean, sometimes, you know, for people, especially the, our, especially if you're an, an instructor who hasn't yet solidified your place in the community. And if you are still trying to find your voice, if you're still trying to establish your reputation and your, your career, I think any kind of that, any kind of criticism is tough, right? Like you tend to, if, if 20,000 people gave you, I, I hear a celebrity say this all the time, 20,000 people could say something awesome to them on Instagram. And all it takes is one person 
to say something hurtful. And that's the thing that we tend to focus on. I think that's just the human condition as well. I feel like somehow or another, that's probably some kind of evolutionary <laughs> evolutionary bug in our in our brain. Like we need to focus on the one thing that's like dangerous um, or hurtful. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It would be, I think it would be interesting to talk to people who have been pulled over by the Pilates police to say, you know, what was your experience like? And what, if you were rattled by it, why do you think that, you know, why did it hurt you? Why, why was this upsetting to you? And, and of course, like if somebody was accusing you of being unsafe or irresponsible, that's tough to hear, even if it's not true. Right. Because when you have when you when someone is saying this public to you on a public platform like Instagram, whether or not that's true, it's out there. Somebody's telling you you're going to hurt somebody in the way that you're doing something. So, um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I agree. I think that we're hardwired to fear social ostracism because when we're in a small hunter gatherer group, on the plains of Africa 200,000 years ago, being ostracized from the tribe was equivalent to a death sentence. And so we, you know, it is truly, you know, our brain, our, our lizard brain treats that as a life or death situation, no different from being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, you know, to be socially ostracized. And I think even in, you know, now in this modern era of, you know, complete internet connectivity and Google reviews and Trustpilot and net promoter scores, like a re reputation is very important, more important than it was, say, 30 years ago when none of, there was no internet and there was, you know, there was no Google reviews and you, you know, you might've had a couple of handwritten testimonials from your clients, but there was no like crowdsourcing you know, from thousands of people of, you know, what do you think about this service or whatever? So I think our reputation is much more prominent now, much more obvious to people than it was 30 years ago. And I also think it's much easier, like you say, it's much easier to damage someone's reputation. Like it might take you 20 years to build it up, but only one day to tear it down. You know, it, it, it's very fragile, this, this social reputation in some ways. So I think, you know, there's, I think that's, you know, people, I think, are, are justifiably afraid of that sort of ostracism and, and criticism that's implied. But, you know, what do you think about, because we see, I mean, you know, we lived through a, a, a cancel attack a couple of years back. We lived to tell a tale, you know, and people live through this stuff all the time. You know, I, I don't know if you've been attacked by the police, please, I have. And it's like, you know, I, I guess it must have stressed me at the time. I can't remember now, but, you know, looking in the rearview mirror a couple of years later, it's like, oh God, I can't believe I even cared about that for five seconds. You know, who cares? So, how, like, it, given that it is such a deep-rooted fear, you know, this sort of social ostracism, like, how is it then that some of us are able to either you know, ignore it when it was taking place or failing that to kind of grit our teeth and get through it. And then over time, we just forget about it and it's, you know, not a thing anymore. 
Well, I'm glad you asked, Raph, because tip number two is um, I'm going to bundle it all together. First, assume good intent. This is partly from Adam McAtee because he helped me with this. We created list today to talk about what to do when you get pulled over by the Pilates police. Assume good intent. The, what I like to attach to that is, oh, Adam said, assume good intent. Don't take it personally. And what I'd like to attach to that as well is be curious, right? So in the instance of someone saying, that is really dangerous, I might respond with, hmm, tell me more about that. What makes it dangerous? And that opens up a conversation, right? Because for instance, let's use prenatal Pilates, also known as Pilates, as an example. Right. So uh, we'll use Haley, for instance, uh, Haley Hawkins doing her beautiful swan when she was 40 months pregnant on the long box. And people were accusing her of, you know, just doing really dangerous things. And it's just like, I know Haley Hawkins. She would never do anything to harm her baby. First of all, she's a nurse by trade. Secondly, this is not her first rodeo. This is her second baby. Thirdly, she's a Pilates professional. And more than anything, like no mother, no normal mother would do anything to hurt her baby, unborn or not. So tell me more about why you think this is dangerous. I, I guess I would, I would, you, I think that's a brilliant question. I guess I, I think about it a little bit differently. I think about it more from an epistemological standpoint, like how we know what we know. And this is the kind of like, how does a bicycle work thing where, you know, if, if you say, if you think like, okay, how does a bicycle work? Well, you probably think like, well, do you, you put the pedals go round and that makes the chain go round, that makes the wheel go round. It's pretty obvious. Most people get how a bicycle works. But then if you say to somebody, okay, draw a bicycle, like an accurate, you know, anatomically accurate picture of a bicycle, right? It doesn't have to be pretty, but just like all the parts in the right places. It's actually surprisingly difficult to draw an anatomically accurate bicycle. And if you draw the bicycle and then you look at the picture of the real bicycle, you're like, huh, I've got the pedals in the wrong spot or they're back to front or you know, whatever, then you realize actually, oh, I thought I knew how a bicycle worked, but actually I don't know how it worked because when I try and draw an accurate bicycle, it's actually not accurate, right? So my picture of how a bicycle works is, is not accurate. And this can, and, and this is a, a proven technique in Socratic dialogue um, to, help, to help people uh, recognize gaps in their own knowledge. So rather than saying, you know, if they say, oh, that's not how a bicycle works, you go, oh, no, you're wrong. The pedals go this way, right? That's unlikely to convince anyone because people just become defensive and it becomes he said, she said, you know, argument. Whereas if you say, huh, I've never seen a bicycle like that before. Can you explain to me more about how the pedals would work here, right? Then the person starts explaining it and they go, uh, 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 uh. and they can't explain it because they've got them back to front, right? <laughs> And then that in the in the act of trying to explain it, they realize, oh no, these this, these pedals are wrong, you know. And then they say it. They say, oh, these pedals are wrong. And so that same technique can be applied within uh, the you know, say the the safety realm, right? So if you see Haley doing swan on the long box at thirty six weeks pregnant, and by the way, it's with her hips on the end of the box and her belly protruding off the end of the box, right? <laughs> So if you can make that picture and then the person says, oh, that's dangerous. And you say, huh, I never thought of that. Can you explain to me, you know, what's, what's dangerous about that? And they go, oh, well, she might, 
hurt herself and and you're like okay well i understand that but it's like i can't quite see how so could you could you explain like specifically how she might hurt herself in this and if like you say natalie like a tone of curiosity right so not trying to have a gotcha moment or anything but just like hey this isn't making sense to me can you can you can you help me understand here and then they start to explain and there's like well there is no and there is no good way to explain it because it's not actually dangerous right so they'll they'll come to this point where they're like well i can't explain it but it's just dangerous you know or or they'll realize that it's 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 like oh no i can't actually explain why it's dangerous and and they may or may not change their minds but but it it's i think it's a much more effective way of disarming that conversation because you're like you're asking them to explain their position which you know if they if they're clear on the position, it should be a pretty basic thing <laughs> to be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, related to that too is, assume, you know, assume good intent, be curious, don't take it personally. But here's another tip too, in, in terms of things like specifically working with prenatal clients, know the prenatal guidelines. That'd be, that'd be a bonus know the prenatal guideline. Because I think there's a lot of judgment and there's a lot of um, pearl clutching in the Pilates industry about working with prenatal clients. And uh, if you know the prenatal guidelines, you're all good, man. Like, easy peasy. I think that I think that's a broader point because, and that kind of comes into our previous, the previous point about, well, if you're, if Maybe that person's wrong in what they're saying. Maybe it isn't dangerous, but maybe you're wrong. Maybe it is dangerous, right? And so, and if 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 you can't draw the bicycle with the pedals around the right way, you know, to support your argument, well, maybe you're maybe you need to change your views, right? So maybe they're maybe you're not maybe they're not the idiot, you know? <laughs> maybe you're the idiot. <laughs> and and so I think we have to go into any conversation where we know the person's wrong, with with the humility. That actually, it might be us that's that's wrong, and so that's where actually just going and looking it up and knowing your shit knowing is your really shit. important. Like, and so, like you say, go look up the. You know, someone says, "Oh, what you're doing, that's dangerous." It's like, huh? I wonder if that's right. So you go look it up, and you read the guidelines. You're like, oh, they didn't say anything about not doing swan on the long box. You know, <laughs> um, I can't see that anywhere. Right? They don't mention it. <laughs> Um, and so then you come back and that's when you can come back and scratch your head and say curiously with your eye, with your head tilted over a little bit, huh? I went and looked up the ACOG guidelines and I read through it twice and I couldn't see anywhere where it said avoid prone exercise or don't do swan on the long box or anything like that. So yeah, can you explain like why you think that's dangerous? Right. And then you can have much more confidence in that, asking that question. But maybe you go through the ACOG guidelines and you're like, oh shit, you know, I, I was doing something dangerous, you know? And then, and then you can change your behavior, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and that's a, that's a, that's another conversation, but related to it is don't hold on something so tightly (laughs) because things change. Science changes, people, you know, things change. So what was the, what was it that, um, strong beliefs held loosely? Is that what we, is that what we agreed on? Yeah. Yeah. Strong, strong beliefs held loosely. Yeah. I love it. All right. So tip number one, know your Pilates history. 
tip number two, actually just go look it up, right? Like maybe maybe they're right, right? Um, or ask them to explain it to you why why and and ask with a genuine sense of curiosity. Just bear in mind you might be wrong here. And at the end of this conversation, if it turns out that you were wrong, when you look back and go, you know, was I an asshole in this conversation? You know, you want to be able to hold your head up and go, no, I was just curious. Yeah. You know, I was curious. Um, and so get curious and ask, okay, so can you, because I don't think this is wrong, but I might be wrong here, right? So can you explain to me why you think this is, why you think this is a bad idea? Uh, and sometimes they won't be able to explain very coherently. And if they can't explain to you in a way that makes sense to you, like in, in short words, short sentences, short paragraphs, then they, that, that means they don't understand it, right? If they can't explain it in a way that you can understand, it means they don't understand it. So uh, in that case, they could well be wrong. Uh, but go look it up. Go look up the guidelines. Go Google it, et cetera. And don't just read any old blog. Like go read a scientific paper or a set of clinical guidelines or something on it. Uh, and uh, yeah, then maybe you're wrong. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe you're both wrong. Maybe you're both right. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> like there are lots of possibilities. All right. So we have some curiosity and intellectual humility. Uh, and have we got a third point? A third oh, bullet point? I got a whole list. You, you want another one? Do you, you want another one? Yeah. Okay. Remember who pays your bills. All right. Devil's advocate question here. Mm. What if it's what if it's your employer who's telling you you're doing it wrong? Then you have two choices: either do it the way your employer wants to, um, or or be curious and talk to your employer. Maybe you have an employer who has an open door policy and wants to hear your point of view, um, or maybe you ultimately decide it's not a good fit for you and you don't work for this organization anymore. I, I guess I'd add there's a, to me, there's a distinction between principle and preference there. That is like, okay, so if it's a thing like, oh no, in teaser, your thoracic should be straight, not rounded, right? That's a preference, right? Some people like it one way, some people like it the other way. It's like, you know, coffee or tea, you know, like there's not a correct answer. There's just like, what do you prefer? And so if it's a preference, well, you know, and if your employer is like, well, I prefer that you teach the teaser with the thoracic lengthened. It's like, well, you're, the question for you then is like, well, can you live with teaching it like that? I mean, no one's going to die if you teach it like that, you know, <laughs> would it kill you to just accommodate them a bit, you know, um, given that, it's fine either way from a safety and results perspective. So that's preference. And then there's principle where someone's saying, you know, you should never give, you know, pregnant women like lunges, you know, which is empirically untrue. You know, it's not a preference. It's just, that's just an untrue statement about how the world works, you know? And so to me, that's a principle. And it's like, for me, I, I wouldn't work for somebody that told me that white was black, you know, like, and I had to agree with it, you know, but if, if I worked with someone that said like, look, I know you love coffee, but here we've only got a, a tea machine. And you, if you want to work here, you have to drink tea while you're here. I'd be like, yeah, I think I can live with that. You know, tea sucks, but what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and so, you know, studio aside or employer aside, I think the other part of it is, is, um, and this is something that you have said before, it's something I've heard Adam say before, which is the haters don't pay your bills, right? So specifically talking about your critics, particularly, let's say on Instagram, because again, that's a lot of where this comes from, the people who are who are leaving snarky comments, or condescending comments, or untrue comments, or whatever, they're not the ones paying you. So really, if you care about anybody's opinion, you're you're mostly caring about what your paying clients um, are saying. Yeah. And I'm sure you've got this as a bullet, but I'm just like such a massive advocate of just instantly block and delete those people. Like, do not give it a second hesitation, just like zero strikes and you're out, you know? Yeah. So that is a separate bullet. Um, and I'm going to add on to that. So a separate bullet to that would be block and delete um, or, or and or don't engage just you ch- you can choose not to engage right yeah right um so i i have a policy like when with my social media that i block and delete if somebody directly like attacks you know like i don't respond i just block and delete like that the that's the end of the, i want i want to spend as the smallest number of seconds possible like engaging my brain with that content and I just want it gone. Uh, if somebody like often though, there's kind of this middle ground. And then the other, the other end is where the other end of the spectrum is someone like, Oh, this is awesome. Love this so much. Great. Go you. Right. You know, so I've sent them a love heart emoji or whatever, you know, that's, that's great. But then there are people in the middle. And so often when I'll post like, Oh, new systematic review finds that, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, what I find is like slow movement speed doesn't enhance strength and, you know, actually fast movement speed better, right? When you're working out. Uh, and then if somebody responds with like, well, oh, what I find is that if I move really slowly, I get much better results with my clients and my clients find it too. And it's like, all right, well, you're comparing your anecdotal experience, which is worth zero with respect, but it's like that my anecdotal experience is with zero as well. But, you know, you obviously don't get the point of like what the scientific method is. And that's why I'm showing a systematic review here, not just my own personal opinion. But so I never engage with those people. I don't say you're wrong. I don't say I disagree. I don't say you just your anecdotal opinion. It's not worth anything. I usually just heart, heart emoji their, you know, their comment and don't reply. Right. Because I think, well, great. Thanks for engaging. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. You're being perfectly friendly and polite and respectful. You're just sharing your own, in my view, wrong opinion, right? Very respectfully and kindly, right? You're being part of the conversation. But I'm not going to spend time because I have in the past and it just takes up too much time. You know, you can't, you know, you can't convert people, you know, one Instagram comment at a time. You know, it's too slow. Like you don't, there are not enough, not enough hours in the year to, to do, do it that way. So you have to just, I mean, if you're me anyway, just make that post and hope that some people get the gist of it. And if other people don't quite get the gist of it, but they still like you enough to keep following you, maybe they'll get it next time. You know, do, yeah. what, what do you, what do you, what's your policy? Like, do you have a, you know, there's a block and delete end and then there's a like, you know, go girl, you're awesome end. 
you know, what do you do for the people in the middle? I'm, I th- I'm a middle kind of person. I typically only block and delete people. Well, first of all, let me say this. I have been really lucky in my time on social media. To be honest, I haven't been on Instagram for very long at all. I think I started my account in February-ish of 2022, just a couple years. Um, and I've had mostly very positive experiences. I haven't had a lot of hate. I've had some weird shit. Like I've had, because it's a public account, I haven't made it private. Um, the, the ones that I block and delete are not Pilates police or critics. They are the, um, it's usually random men who private message me to have an affair with them. What the? Mm-hmm. But I mean, I know your Instagram account and your Instagram account is so like G rated. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it yeah. is so family friendly. It's very, it's, it's, you know, I, the reason why my Instagram account is Natalie Wilson Pilates is because it's mostly about Pilates. Every now and then I'll post things of my kids because, you know, like that's part of my but, life. But too. even in that, like it's not, you, there's no shots of you in like a skimpy crop top doing Pilates, you know, oh, here's this shot of my butt while I do this exercise. It's nothing like that. It's like, it's totally like, like it's G-rated, your, mm-hmm. your, your Instagram account. Yeah. So that, that surprises the heck out of me. I mean, I guess in hindsight, no, you know, being a man and knowing men, no, it, no, it doesn't surprise me, but I guess it still does surprise me. Yeah. That's, that's really where I block and delete is that I do, I do get that. I get those DMs. They're creepy and they're weird. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's so creepy and weird, but also it's just like so stupid. It's like, what would make someone think that that would actually work? You know, I know. I'll just message this random person. <laughs> no, I know. It's really funny. Yeah. I don't honestly know if it's, it's like a catfish or if it's for real. But every time I, when I first got them, I remember because, you know, I'm new to Instagram and my husband's like, what's that look on your face? And I'm like, oh, this person is like trying to have an affair with me over Instagram. And my husband's like, tell him that that he can have you go for it. (laughs) Good luck. Uh, Yeah, I know. It's very strange. I typically don't block people. Um, I haven't had a lot of, I haven't, I, I haven't had very many haters. I have had people who have blocked me for instance like when you uh when breathe was going through the cancel attack i was not yet working for breathe but at the time i think i had been on your podcast a couple of times and um for a while for a little bit like i had a few people in the pilates community messaging me back and forth saying you know why do you support this and you know going back and forth and i'm like okay we're having a discussion this is fine and finally i think when they realized like i wasn't budging and I was going to continue to listen to the podcast and be a fan of free. They're just like block and delete. So I've, I've been blocked and deleted, but I tend not to do that. I, unless somebody is being incredibly disrespectful and I can't think I, in my recent memory, I can't think of anybody like that. I just let people make their comments and I'm just like, I either ignore it or I'm just like, thanks for your feedback. So how can somebody then, all right. And you know, maybe you, we've already get, given all of the answer we can give for this, but you and I are kind of pretty privileged here because we, I mean, you know, people can hate you on Instagram or me, but that's not, I mean, there's no actual practical effect on us. Like 
you know, you're not going to lose your job, you know, <laughs> because of that. I'm not going to lose my job because of it. So we're, you know, from a, from a purely kind of pragmatic, you know, nuts and bolts standpoint, we're actually immune to this stuff. Now, that doesn't mean it can't hurt your feelings, but from a sticks and stones may break my bones point of view, it's like, no, they can't, right? So, so we have the luxury of being able to go, ah, piffle, you know, who cares about this idiot, you know? Um, what about that person who's much, I guess, much more like literally vulnerable to this, like someone who could lose their job? You know, because, you know, if, if the other, if their clients or their boss or whatever sees that they are, quote, doing something dangerous or wrong or whatever, you know, and maybe they're just at a formative stage of their career, they're relatively newly certified, they're feeling less sure of themselves, they don't have the confidence of knowing that they've been teaching for decades and it's like they've got a bazillion happy clients and people who respect and love them and whatever. So they don't have all of those sort of proof and social support and networks and sort of invulnerability. Like, how can that person, you know, deal with these these kinds of negative comments or, you know, being put, essentially put down or belittled? Well, I think that, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, if it's, if it's a matter of being, a, if your, if your Instagram account and what you do personally for Instagram is affecting it could affect your employment status. That kind of goes back to a previous point we made, which is, is this a, is this a good fit for you? Right? So, I, well, okay, let's, let's be a little bit nuanced here. My Instagram account is very G-rated because I feel like even though it's my personal account, I am a representative of multiple organizations. I'm a representative of Breathe. I'm a representative of the hospital I work for. I'm also a representative of the studio I work for. There is a level of professionalism that is, it's, it's just basic. There's a level of professionalism. And this is something that we teach our kids about the internet. The internet is forever. Please don't take a picture of your penis and post it on the internet. Or anything because seemed like a good idea forever. at the time. <laughs> it's forever. So part of it is just like basic common sense, right? Like common sense about what it is you're posting, common decency, professionalism, especially if it's a work related thing or if you think you have clients or potential clients who are going to be following you. That's the basic thing, common sense. Um, and then beyond that, yeah, I, if 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 you get in trouble with your employer i think that's a really that, that would have to be a case by case thing like i wouldn't want to work for a company that said to me i can't you know the things that you're posting are controversial or whatever it's like yeah i don't know what do you think you're you're the boss what do you think what what would what would be a fireable offense what would i need what would I need to post in order for you to fire me or, or at least get in trouble? If, if you were posting a bunch of stuff, and we've, we've actually had this situation in the past, that literally this situation, obviously it wasn't with you, but uh, you know, if you were posting stuff like, um, you know, spinal flexion is dangerous, uh, always Q transversus abdominis, movement is dangerous, don't exercise when you have a disc bulge. Um, that kind of stuff, that would be like a 
fireable offence. Yeah, because that is completely contradictory to our philosophy at breathe, right? Right, right. So that is, and that that would be a like, how did we let this person onto the team when she's got these beliefs that are completely diametrically opposed to what we stand for? Right. So yeah, so there would be things that would be a fireable offence, and I think there should be in every organisation, right? I mean, if I work for, I don't know, you know, Denny's restaurants, and I'm I'm posting on my Instagram account, hey, go to IHOP, everyone, it's awesome. Don't go to Denny's. It's like that's not cool. You know, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think there should be certain things that are beyond the pale. But I, th- so I think you know, for instance, I don't know if if you work at a like very sort of authentic classical Pilates studio, right? And you're posting stuff about, um, you know, advocating something that's not classical Pilates, advocating like, hey, do this fitness Pilates workout with me. Like, I don't know if that's diametrically opposed and that's necessarily like automatically a fireable offense. But I think if you work, if the studio you work at has this really strongly held philosophy that Pilates is this pure thing and we do it this certain way, I think it's kind of like, well, I think that's fair enough if that's the the value system of that workplace and it's clearly transparently stated when you're employees. Like, we do classical Pilates here. We don't do fitness Pilates. We don't do contemporary, you know, we all live the dream and we passionately love classical Pilates and, you know, we don't deviate from that, right? And if you if you love that, come work here. If not, don't come work here. And then if I come work there and then I'm posting like, hey, I went to my megaformer class. Isn't Pilates awesome, right? then I can see why that doesn't, that, that is not congruent with their branding, right? And why that, I, I would, I think they would be justified in firing me in that, not, not for a single offense, but for like, hey, Raph, do you freaking get what we're on about here? You know, like, <laughs> were you at any of the staff meetings? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fair. What do you think? No, that's really fair. It's like, um, I'm not going to name names because he's going to be upset if he hears this, but I know somebody, I'm very close to somebody who um, used to work for Samsung and had to hide his iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's a thing. Like I could never work for Samsung because I just love Apple products, you know? Um, So yeah, I think, I think like you have, like you have to eat your own cooking. Good point. So yeah. Yeah. So I think, it's not about like what is or isn't Pilates, but I think it's about that there has to be a strong values and philosophical alignment between the, the workplace culture and the employee. Otherwise, it's not a good fit in either direction. You know, I'm not going to be happy working for Samsung and Samsung's not going to be happy with me working for them. You know, it's not going to be a happy marriage. So well, the sooner we end it, the better. The reality of the situation is that we live in this time where we choose to put ourselves out there and those things do become a reflection of, of you. So, you know, I mean, this happens with college professors and politicians and actors where someone will dig up something off the internet that had nothing to do with anything except something really personal. and they get lambasted, their reputation gets, I mean, this, this is just how the world works, unfortunately. So. Right. 
I mean, I, you know, what you're talking about there is essentially cancel culture. And I, I think that is, you know, pernicious and dangerous to our society. And I think, you know, if, if, if someone showed me a 20 year old video or, you know, blog post that you'd made where you said, I like neutral spine, it would be like, who gives a flying fuck? You know, it's like you've changed your view since then, right? If you post it today, <laughs> then I'm going to scratch my head and go like, "What is Natalie? What drugs is Natalie taking?" You know, like. <laughs> yeah. But but I think this goes that what you just referenced goes even worse and deeper because often it's something that's totally irrelevant to their job, right? So it might be some like history professor who 20 years ago expressed some kind of political opinion. You know, they're not a politics professor. <laughs> they're history. It's like in their private life, they express some kind of, oh, I voted for XYZ candidate or whatever, right? Or I think XYZ candidates are really good or whatever. And it's like, and now they get, you know, statues of them torn down for that, you know, med- you know figuratively. Yeah, I think that's terrible. And, but I think that what we're, I, I basically anybody who would do that, that's a like, one time and I never want to see that person again sort of thing. That's a like, you're blocked. Even if you don't do it to me, if I see you doing it to someone else, you know, I'm going to block and delete. But I think like the, you know, as we, as we now in this, like, you know, like you said, the internet's forever, right? And it's also like really big, you know, the internet's really, really big. And so you know, anything you say on the internet is like this massive megaphone, you know, that there's so many people, you know, hear it, see it, et cetera. And because it's forever, you might've said something two years ago and only four people heard it, but now like two years later, someone else shares it and bam, like a thousand people hear it. And so like you say, like things can come back to haunt you. And so I think, you know, because of that, you know, it's inevitable that at some point we're all going to offend someone. You know, it's just not possible to like, if you and I sit in a room together, just the two of us and have a chat, we could probably talk for hours and not offend each other. Right. But I don't know if, if we, if we, I mean, you've been married to your husband for a couple of decades. It's inconceivable to me that he's never offended you. He offends me every single day. (laughs) Right. So, so even somebody you deeply care about, right. Who you love and respect and like and admire spend long enough with them, they're going to do or say something that's going to rub your feathers up the wrong way, right? That's just inevitable. Now, if you get in a room with 10 people that you don't know very well, right, and you talk about a subject, there's a pretty good chance one of them's going to take it the wrong way. If you get in a room with 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, and you express any opinion, any opinion on any subject, like it's almost a mathematical certainty that, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 of those people are going to violently disagree with you. You know, pineapple goes on pizza. Coffee is better than tea. Dogs are better than cats. You know, like Pilates is better than yoga. Like, you know, these are things that we can say lightheartedly, but there are people out there that don't, that take it very seriously. Right. And, and the bigger your audience, the more chance that you're just going to bam, bump into one of those people. Right. So even if all you're saying is something that's so inoffensive, like pineapple goes on pizza, you know, right? And that's, that's a perennial joke, but for someone out there, it's not a joke, right? And so the, the bigger your audience, the more chance you run into someone with no sense of humor about this topic and they, 
they get you know, pissed off at you. And so I think it's just an in, we need to see it as an inevitable consequence of success, successfully building an audience, right? That the bigger your audience, the more chance someone's going to get offended until at some certain size, the chance is 100%. You know, 100%, not 99.9. Like everybody who's got an audience of, the, you know, a couple of, like 20,000 plus, even 10,000 plus, like everybody has haters. You always have haters. You know, you talk, like people I admire and respect so much on social media, that I think like these people are like, they don't talk, don't talk about politics, they don't talk about ethics, they don't talk about morality, they don't talk about any contentious subjects. They talk about like cooking or, you know, fitness or, you know, just like things you think like nobody could get upset, you know, <laughs> with this topic or the comedy or whatever. And it's like, no, they, they, when they interview, they're like, oh, yeah, I get so many hate messages and death threats and, you know, all that. It's like people just don't have senses of humor, you know? <laughs> so I think we should just take it as like, if we, if we reframe it as, well, you know, it means people are paying attention, you know, and the more people who pay attention, it eventually becomes inevitable that you're going to, you're going to hit this point, right? Yeah. I mean, I was think, like thinking back on, on one of the posts that got people all crazy and started the whole cancel thing with you. I remember, I really do vividly remember that post and I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. I was like, oh, Raft is being funny. You're right. Like people take themselves too seriously. I think, and this is not one of the tips that I had in terms of the Pilates police, but I'm going to put it in there because it's something that I really stand firm by in my own um, Pilates life is have a sense of humor. Don't take yourself so seriously. Try to have fun. Like today, um, this week was assessment week at Breathe. Uh, both cohorts had assessments and they they come in so stone-faced. And I'm just like, this is where I tell you that we're not doing open heart surgery. We're just teaching slow gymnastics. Try to have fun. You're, you're giving somebody the gift of movement. Don't take yourself so seriously. Just try to have fun. I really, that is definitely a, uh, a massive survival skill of mine in this industry is just try to have fun. Surround yourself by people who have fun. It's not, I mean, when you put it that way, like it isn't open heart surgery, you know, it, it's like... It really is, you know, for 99% of the world, such a small, you know, inconsequential thing that we do. Now, I don't think that it's small and inconsequential. You know, we save lives by getting people moving, right? But, like, it's not like life and death as in if you do it wrong, they'll die right now, you know? <laughs> Like open heart surgery, <laughs> yeah, or ever, or ever. Um, it's just the the stakes are so low. You know, the yeah. stakes are it's a very low stakes poker game we're playing. <laughs> we're playing from broken matchsticks, you know. <laughs> and yeah, it's because we care so much. It's very easy to get so caught up and think like, I, "This is so serious. This is life or death. This is so vital and so important." It's like, nah, it's not fucking important. <laughs> it's not important. You know, you go back to like the turn of the century, the turn of the twentieth century. People were doing like all kinds of weird and wacky things. They didn't have um, 
Pilates. They didn't have, you know, even like Olympic weightlifting wasn't invented. Powerlifting wasn't invented. Gyms weren't invented. They just had like barbells with two big round, like solid spheres of iron on the end of a pole. And the barbell was on the ground and you had to pick it up off the floor and put it on your shoulders. And then they, so they did used to like bend sideways and pick up these barbells in all kind of weird contorted positions and then do what they, they didn't have the concept of squats. Squats were only invented in like the 19 teens or twenties. And they had these things called deep knee bends that you used to do, which is where your heels you would come up, you'd have put a barbell, you'd, you'd manipulate this barbell off the floor in this kind of weird side bent kind of you know, Turkish get up sort of maneuver. Put the barbell on your shoulder and then do a deep knee bend with your heels coming off the floor and your knees going way forwards of your toes till your butt was on your heels. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're kind of squashing on your toes, right, with your, your heels touching your butt and your knees are like way out in front of your body. And so that was like the normal way that people lifted weights for like decades until the squat rack was invented in the 1950s or whenever it was. You know, so, and then we all had this idea that you should squat with your feet flat on the floor, right? But that's only. 80 years old or 70 years old, the idea that you should swap with your feet flat on the floor. It's like, you know, 200 years ago, exercise looked completely different. And by today's standards, they were doing it totally wrong, right? But they survived, you know, they were okay. Life went on, you know, like, you know, Jane Austen isn't full of tales of people, you know, breaking themselves in a, you know, terrible yeah, accident while they were doing their deep knee bends or anything, you know, like it's, they had bigger things to worry about. It's just, it's, it's not that big of a deal. No. What, what's next on your, on your bullet list? Uh, one that we haven't, ta- well, we've kind of been skirting around the issue a little bit, but find your tribe. That way you don't feel so alone. It feels very lonely sometimes. Um, being a Pilates, we've, I've had this conversation in many iterations. I say it on air and I say it to our students. Pilates can be really lonely. And also, um, if all you have is social media, I don't, I don't think that's enough. I, I think it's wonderful. And I do have, I have met really wonderful people through Instagram. Um, but cultivate your support system find a mentor, find some friends, be able to share your wins and your losses with your tribe, with your support system, because it's just so much better to be able to, like, I love having these conversations with you because I can't have this conversation with my husband because he can only listen. He can't, he can't tell me back. He can kind of, it's funny because we work I work upstairs and he works downstairs and every now and then he'll come upstairs and just make fun of me by imitating the things that I say. And then I'll go downstairs and make fun of him and imitate the shit that he says. He works in finance and investments. So we just, you know, just (laughs) razz each other about the stupid shit that we say. Um, But I can't honestly have a conversation about investments with him and he can't have one with me about Pilates. And I do have good friends and colleagues that we can just talk forever about Pilates and it feels really good to be able to have a community of people that love and support you. I'm going to throw in a plug for our clinical exercise specialist certification here, because I think that something like that provides the community that you're talking about where you can talk unguardedly 
and you can ask those questions like, oh, shit, someone said this X, Y, Z is dangerous. Like, is it? You know, how, where do I go look that up? How do I know? Um, can you explain the biomechanics of that knee bend thing? Like, is it dangerous for your knees to go in front of your toes? Um, and yeah, so you can answer, you can answer those knowledge-based questions. So you, you actually do know if you were wrong or right about, you know, that thing. And secondly, there's this just environment where you can, it's a safe place to be ignorant, to be wrong, to believe that the body is not fragile, you know, to, to question long-held beliefs and the standard wisdom of the Pilates and fitness and health industries. So it's a, yeah, it's a safe environment to be intellectually curious and very stimulating environment where you can, you're, you can just drop your guard and be amongst other people who are on the same wavelength. Yeah. So, uh, if you're interested and you need to, you, if you listen to this podcast, we're your tribe. And, yeah. uh, if you, if you worry about your knowledge and you need more, you want to have a conversation with us rather than just having us having a conversation and you eavesdropping, uh, come to, <laughs> come to the, Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehab Certification, and we'll do it live with you, and we'll have actual, these are the conversations we have in there. Although, we actually, they're probably a little bit more technical and less meandering than this one. We'll talk about biomechanics of the knee or whatever. Um, yeah. Anyway, have you got anything else? I'm just going to hop back on your gravy train while you're still talking about that. And I'm going to say, we're gonna, I, I want to circle back to the first part, which is some of the best ways to deal with the Pilates police apart from having a tribe is really to know your shit. So for me, I don't fear the Pilates police, number one, because they don't exist. They have zero jurisdiction over anybody. They're just, the Pilates police is an invisible made up thing from a person who feels like this, they have the authority to say what Pilates is or isn't, what is safe or what is or isn't. And if you know your shit and you know yourself and you know your mission and you know your product, you're, you're good. You're golden. And honestly, and this is the truth. This is not a plug. I know my shit and I know where I stand. And it's because I accidentally came across a podcast a long time ago and somehow ended up <laughs> working for, for that podcast and working for that company. Yeah. Isn't it funny when you like you know, when you perceive a company, because I've been in that situation too, where I've looked from the outside of a company and thought like, gee, I would love to work for that company. And then I've ended up working for that company. And the thing is, because now I've been on the outside, I've been on the inside, right? So I've been on the inside where people come and say, oh, I would so love to work, you know, for your company. And unfortunately we have, well, fortunately, I guess we have more people saying they want to work for us than we actually have jobs available for people. But it's, it's, it's often true and it's been often true for us as well that even though it's such a great place to work in many ways, you know, we're far from perfect, but you know, we've got a certain set of values that it's actually hard for us to find people who share those values very strongly. Cause one of our, you know, absolute you know, deal breakers is you must be a values fit 
to work here. It's like, you know, that's why I said before, if you were posting about neutral spine and core activation, it's like, that wouldn't work, you know? So we don't let people just work for breath education if they've got a heartbeat and they can do teaser, you know, like there's a very stringent set of criteria that we apply. And so, you know, even though you're sitting on the outside going, oh, gee, I wish I could work there. On the inside, we're sitting here going, gee, I wish we could find someone who's super passionate about the same things that we're super passionate about. And I think studios, or no studios are the same because I talk to instructors who are looking for a studio. They're like, how can I find somewhere that shares the same values? Then I talk to studio owners and they have the exact same conversation. How can I find someone that shares my values, that believes in the same things I believe in, that I don't have to explain it for hours, I just freaking get it, you know? And it's like, yeah, you just want to be able to have unguarded conversations about what you believe to be true and to be intellectually curious and stimulated and, you know, work to better yourself and your clients in the business. It's like, that's what good people want, you know, <laughs> like, and, and so if you're an instructor out there and you're looking for a job or you're in a job that is less than that for you, like there is somewhere else right now where they are desperately wishing that they had someone exactly like you walk in and go, do you have any jobs, right? Like the studio owner or the educator or whatever, they, they get lonely too. Yeah, they, they, need, they need instructors and team members who have the same value system, the same belief about you know, being curious and you know, all of this stuff. So like don't feel stuck in a job that you, you know, feel like you have to stay there because there are no options for you because there are options. You know, there are, there are other people out there just like you, I promise you. Yeah. Keep looking. I got to say, um, our training team, the breathe team that I work with, I have never been happier in terms of any kind of work I've ever done because I've done other things, right? I've worked in social work. I've worked in mental health. I worked in legal advocacy. It makes such a huge difference to be a part of a group where you feel safe. You can, you have similar passions and values. And where you don't, you have an environment where it is safe to be yourself. It is safe to be honest and direct. Yeah, it's amazing. It's wonderful. And, um, you know, we know that's something we talk about a lot in the, in all of our clinical programs, that social support buffers stress a lot. And you can put up with a lot more shit from idiots when you've got a strong, supportive, you know, group, family, team, friendship, colleagues, whatever, around you that you can just, you know, get them to look over and roll your eyes or whatever, you know. <laughs> And and then just debrief or, you know, go, am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. You know, this person is an idiot. <laughs> so, no, it's not uh, And maybe that's un- unkind. That person is an idiot, but sometimes people behave like idiots on social media. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say social support not only buffers stress, social support is it, it buffers wellness, right? Chronic pain, like we know, we know all this stuff just from from all the research. Just having a social support system is really protective. Is there anything else that you want to touch on? I don't think How so. To deal with social media with uh, it's not really social media. It's Pilates, police, but the it pol- mostly happens on social media. Mostly happens, yeah. 
I mean, it can happen in, it has happened to some of our students when they've done practice teaching outside of, um, outside of brief. They, I've had, I've had students tell me that they've been bullied and hazed by the, by the Pilates community. Um, so it does happen in real life as well. Um, but um, let me take a look at my list. I think we covered everything, all of the tips. There are many. I think we had at least six or seven. Do you remember them all? You're, you're like a steel trap. I'm not. I actually, you, you've said before that your memory is like a sieve, but I don't believe that for a second. I feel like you're really good at, um, giving summaries on these podcasts. I, I can't. It, it's domain specific. I think it is for all of us. Uh, so my memory is like a steel trap when it comes to certain things and like a sieve when it comes to other things. And I think that's the case for most of us. Like my wife, you know, can remember what literally what we wore and what we had for dinner when we went out on our third wedding anniversary 17 years ago, you know, I can't even remember what our freaking anniversary date is, (laughs) you know, um, I'm not sure if we've been married 17 years or 20 or 23, somewhere around there, you know. Um, but I can remember the the, the chemical f- formula for carbohydrate, you know. She can't. You know, but like, I don't know, how useful is that? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how useful is either of those things. So I think we just, we have different, me- you know, we have memories for different things. Do you know what one of my most favorite traits uh, of you is? I don't think I've ever shared this with you. Um, one of the things that I am so impressed with, with you about is your ability to just on the fly draw anatomical stuff. Like I find that to be so incredible. Like when I watch videos of you doing that, I just, I do not understand how you can do that. I'll tell you how I can do it. It's a learned skill. I didn't, I didn't used to be able to do it. Mm-mm. So, um, when I was doing my degree in exercise science, my undergraduate degree, one of the topics was anatomy. Um, and it was pretty detailed. Like they wanted you to really know lots and lots of minutiae. Uh, and so they, you know, it was to the degree of like, they'd have you like, look at this, you know, fem- look at this, like say humerus bone, the upper arm bone, you know, identify, you know, which is the medial sulcus, which is the bicipital groove, which is the blah, 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 right? So you had to identify all these kind of tiny little bumps and dents in the in the bone. God knows why any of that, you know, I'm not going to be doing surgery on someone's arm who doesn't really matter if I know that stuff. But anyway, the the way that I learned to memorize those things was I I practiced drawing. So I I got a an anatomically accurate, I got an anatomy textbook and I got some tracing paper and I traced an image of a humerus, say the upper arm bone, right? Uh, and got it like just exactly like the picture in the book. And then I looked at it and then I covered it and then I redrew it from memory. Then I looked at it, then I covered it and I redrew it from, and I just did that until I drew it accurately. And then I just rinsed and repeated. And then I drew that, you know, added in the scapula and the clavicle and you know, repeated the same process. And then I had this photocopy of this accurate drawing that I've drawn of the, the shoulder girdle, you know, the, scavic, the, the, the scapula, the shoulder blade, the collarbone, the clavicle, and the humerus, the upper arm bone, and how they interacted together. And then I just photocopied like 50 copies of that in black and white on, a, on just a printed page. And then I drew in the muscles. 
And I again, I did it one by one by one by one from the textbook, cover it, do it from memory, check my work. Oh, whoops, I got that a bit wrong. Do it again from memory. And I just did that so many times until I just knew where those bits were. And in the, so the, the goal wasn't to get good at drawing it. The goal was to remember where all the bits were. But in the process of remembering where all the bits were, I just drew it so many times. I actually got good at drawing. Cause like when you go to draw, when you go to draw a pelvis, you, you realize like, oh fuck, I don't actually know the actual shape of the pelvis. You know, I know it's kind of like this heart, double heart shape thing looks like elephant ears with this kind of nosy thing in the middle, you know, but then you realize I don't actually know how the, where does, where's the, that big hole at the back go The like, you know, and where is the hip socket? You know, is it on the side? Is it on the front? Is it facing up? Is it facing down? And so then you have to, you have to actually look. It's like, it's like the bicycle thing, right? Draw a bicycle, right? In order to draw, like you think, oh, bicycle, easy peasy. But then you draw one and you look at it. It's like, no, that's not actually an accurate, mechanically functional bicycle because the pedals are back to front or the chain's on the wrong side or the wheels are upside down or whatever. And so same with the, with the pelvis and the humerus and the, all of the things that you'd, when you'd go to draw it, you realize, oh, actually, I don't freaking know the proper shape of this body part. And so you just have to, by just looking at it and doing it and looking at it and doing it and looking at it and doing it, so many times you get to the point where you're like, oh, yeah, I get it now. And I, I've, I've decreased, like my, I'm not as sharp now. Like I couldn't tell you where the freaking medial sulcus is on the humerus anymore, but I know the shape of the humerus well enough that I can draw something that looks pretty close to an anatomically accurate, you know, bone off, off the top of my head. But that's just because I've literally practiced drawing it like a few hundred times, you know? Uh, so it's, it's just practice. I'm not a very good artist. I'm not very good at drawing things. I can't draw faces or heads or, or, or like hands or anything very well at all. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a very talented sketch artist, but I've just practiced specifically doing anatomical drawings of bones and muscles <laughs> like enough to and and some bones I haven't practiced like the feet and hand bones I haven't practiced so I wouldn't be able to do those right I've got a rough idea I know where the carpals are and the metacarpals and the phalanges and stuff but if I had to actually draw them I would realize no I don't really know where they are because I know like if I'm looking at my hand now I can look and go oh yeah there's some, some kind of like small bones in this part here right and that's all cool, but if I had to actually draw them, I would have a complete mental blank. I don't know which one is kind of rhomboid shaped and which one is trapezoid shaped and how they fit together. Um, but if I just looked at the skeleton and drew it and then put the skeleton away and tried to draw it again and then rinsed and repeated that 50 times, I'd know it. And so would you and so would anyone else, you know? So it's just a matter of taking the trouble to, to spend the time. And I'm not, I'm not saying anyone should do that, but if you wanted to, become really uh, confident and able to draw a maybe not a visually pleasing, but at least an anatomically accurate, you know, set of bones and muscles, then it's just a matter of practice. Like anything, like playing the piano, you know, do it enough times you become adequately skilled, you know, and you might not ever become a concert pianist, but you'll be like, if you practice for 10 hours, you'll be better than 90% of people in the world. Yeah. No, I'm really impressed by it. And um, it does help. It helps when you're learning anatomy and biomechanics to have somebody draw it in real time. So it does help. Yeah. Well, when I, when, when I learned anatomy, I actually didn't go to the lectures at my university. Well, I went to the first one. It was so bad. It was just this long list of muscle lodges and insertions and droning on. Like we did like 
40 muscles in one three-hour lecture. It's like I totally was lost after the first five minutes and everything else was a blur. And so I actually ended up just finding this guy online, Dr. Gerald Cesaslow, at the College of St. Scholastica in um, Duluth, Minnesota. I've never been there, never heard of him before. Like, I've never been to Minnesota ever. And uh, so I just, he put all of his lectures online. He did anatomy, physiology 101, 202, 303, 404. He did pathophysiology. He did all of these different, you know, um, anatomy courses, university level. He was teaching doctors and nurses and physiotherapists anatomy. And he put all these lectures online and they were just audio only. Um, and he did drawings while he was lecturing, but he didn't put the drawings online. It was just, this was like back in 2013 or something. And he was some old codger in, you know, Minnesota. He didn't know how to put his iPad thing online or what it was like, you know, he was, there's no way he was going to do it. So he just, he was, he was so good at verbally describing the visual of, and he was talking a lot more about physiology rather than biomechanics. He was talking about like what happens inside your muscles when they contract, you know, what, what are the molecules doing? What causes diabetes and how is blood sugar transported from outside the cell to the inside of the cell? You know, all of this, you know, you know, what causes a nerve impulse? You know, what is a nerve impulse and how, how does, what are the molecular processes that, you know, happen as part of that nerve impulse? Um, so, and what he did was he just painted a picture with his words of these structures. Like he painted, you know, pictures of protein molecules and, you know, calcium molecules and hydrogen ions and, you know, sodium molecules and blood, you know, cells and things. And he, he painted these pictures so vividly that I, f- I felt I could actually draw them. And so I actually started drawing them. Right. And, and so now when I teach anatomy, I do draw those things because I learned from him, from him just describing them verbally to me. I never saw his pictures, but then of course I went and looked them up in anatomy textbooks afterward, in physiology textbooks. So I was roughly accurate. But yeah, so I learned from Doc, Doc Cesadlo, Doc C, he calls himself, that to truly understand anatomy is to make a picture, right, of what's happening. And that's why I've, I've spent subsequently so many hours and hundreds of hours practicing those drawings and practicing describing those drawings verbally, because I think that's the actual skill of understanding anatomy is actually making that picture and making the picture with the pedals in the correct position, you know, like an actually accurate position. Now, it doesn't have to be like fully detailed, but you just have like all of the big parts are in the correct positions and the proportions are right. You know, the big things are big and the small things are small and they're facing around the right way. And, you know, so, yeah, so that has, that has, been, that has been a very, possibly one of, possibly the most profound thing I learned about the body in the last whatever really is that making pictures in your mind is is how you understand anatomy and it blows my mind that tens of thousands of people around the world go through medical degrees every year without doing that <laughs> that they just you know wrote learning a list of trivia which is what I was taught at university but yeah it's such a powerful profound secret to just that shouldn't be a secret it should just be <laughs> the way it's taught and that's the way we teach it now. But yeah, so I'm sorry, I've totally gone off on a, on a tangent here, but I think that that you just kind of trigger that, that this, the the drawing is so foundational to the way that I think about anatomy, you know, 
it's not that the, I have to draw to think about it, but it's like, if I want to communicate what's in my head to get it in your head, it's like, we have to have a picture. Like that's the only way it can work. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that wasn't to do with um, the Pilates police, but <laughs> it was a fascinating little uh, side, side, uh, side quest. It's well, it's related to the idea that if you know your shit, you can you can stand in your own power. I think that you know, and I think we've all had this experience teaching Pilates. I certainly did anyway. That we demonstrate the exercises that we're most confident doing. Like, do you do that? I used to. Now, now you demonstrate ones you're not that good at as well. Yeah, so people can see what a real human being looks yeah. like and not just some Pilates yeah. goddess. Yeah, I think that's a much better way to do it. Well, and part of my job now, you know, like there's there's exercises in the repertoire that I have to demonstrate, and people get what they get, and I just need to be. Everybody just needs to be okay that my breaststroke on the long box is bullshit. And that's okay. <laughs> it's more like shoulder press on the long box. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Mine's actually like push. I push downwards pretty much. Like I can't even get to horizontal. <laughs> you know what I do just to make it look like I'm um, I'm getting higher is I is I actually like you like you I push downwards. I dive down so that when I lift up in like the centimeter that I lift up, I actually look like I'm lifting up. Forced perspective. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that's much better, Natalie. And I I didn't used to do that when I was teaching back in the day. I mean, I would have definitely demonstrated exercises that didn't look great, but I was trying my darndest to make them look good. And when I was teaching class, I would rarely demonstrate, but when I would demonstrate, it would be, just happened to be one of the exercises I was really able to like look good doing. Um, and I think, I think that's a temptation for a lot of people. I guess it's a temptation for a lot of people. And I think that within like within like then the more narrowly you specialize, the more expert you can become and the deeper your knowledge can become within that field. And so you can be more confident within that particular domain but i think that when you go outside that domain where you are where you do know your stuff that i think one of the things that we should normalize and we kind of touched on this before is just saying is like going i don't have an opinion on this topic because i don't know enough you know or i actually don't know the answer to that or like huh i didn't know that let me go look it up you know <laughs> like it it's totally fine i think it's it's an admirable thing when i see somebody when I see somebody respond with, I don't know enough to have an opinion on this topic. Yeah. Like, I think, fuck yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I wish more people okay. would take that view. Yeah, I agree. Well, and it just takes the pressure off of feeling like you have to, you know, like you, you don't have to be the expert in the room and it's better not to be. It's just easier. You know why? Because Pilates should be fun. That's why. Because this is supposed to be fun. It's not heart surgery. No one's going to die. No one's going to lose their job. No one's, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. God's not going to kill a kitten. Doesn't God kill a kitten every time you do teaser wrong? <laughs> it definitely, there are people who want you to believe that, and we are here to say that's not going to happen. Or well, we'll, we will plant a tree every time you do teaser wrong to there offset it. There we go. <laughs>
So you'll be you'll be you'll be uh, carbon neutral. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Well, um, thanks very much. This is this has been a fun conversation. Yeah. Good talk, Raf. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.